Welcome to another episode of the Bakari Tells Podcast. Today, I have somebody who you guys see me on TV with all the time. He's a really good friend of mine, and we actually have really good chemistry, which is it shows on television, but he's none other than the king of Louisville himself. Rick, no, I'm sorry, Scott Jennings. How are you, my <laughs> brother? <laughs> Everything going good? Yeah, man, good to be with you. Thanks for the invite. Good, good, good. You know, a lot of times when people see us on TV, they just think that we're characters that appear out of thin air but we actually have lives and we've actually done this work before. So I start each one of my episodes by having our guests walk us through the arc of their career. And you've straddled the fence between politics and journalism for some time. Talk about your various career stops since Louisville. Yeah, uh, thanks uh, for letting me talk through my my uh, past here. It's uh, It's been a long journey, but uh, a fun journey. I started at the University of Louisville back in the 90s and I uh, wanted to be a journalist. I was a radio news anchor and a reporter and uh, and really thought that was going to be my path. Uh, in 2000, though, um, I got a call from U.S. Senator Mitch McConnell, who was recruiting me to go work for then Texas Governor George W. Bush and <laughs> decided to, to leave it behind and, and join the Bush campaign. And and really, the, the rest is history. As far as my political career goes, we won that race. Uh, I went to uh, on to work on a couple other campaigns here in Kentucky. I worked on the Bush-Cheney 04 campaign. I went to the White House and work for Carl Rove after that. I did come home at the end of the Bush administration and uh, got into the public affairs business and still do some political consulting along the way. But mostly now my company, RunSwitch Public Relations, it's over 10 years old. We have 20 something employees. We do work all over the country and uh, and have a really nice uh, client mix and a really good team here. I do dabble in politics some. I've got a few you know, uh, clients out there, uh, but, but mostly we're corporate corporate public affairs firm. Most of my political work these days, Bakari, has been, as you mentioned, on the media side. I've uh, done a lot of writing over the years. I've been with CNN now since May of 2017. Been a long time. So, yeah, I've taken a taken a lot of beatings during that period. I don't know if there was something going on during that period that would have caused me tremendous amount of pain, but <laughs> it was a, it's been a, uh, it's been a quite a journey with, with CNN and, and obviously uh, meeting you along the way and, and having our public conversations has been has been a rewarding part of it. So I, I do, I've always kind of considered myself to be a bit of a journalist at heart. Uh, and uh, and uh, I think that stems back from from the early stages of my career. D- digging in deep real quick, you work for Carl Rove. What does that look like? Other than the fact you get paid absolutely no money. Talk about the your portfolio in the White House and what that looks like. Yeah, I was in the White House Office of Political Affairs. I was special assistant to the president. Um, at various times, I had oversight over uh, several states, and we kind of divided the office up into regions, and and uh, some of us would have oversight over certain states. Political affairs was kind of a for us; it was kind of a catch-all job uh, of constituent service type stuff. The president, of course, is the titular head of of his or her political party, and uh, we kind of were the liaison office for for that. Uh, you know, there's an intergov office that handles local officials. There's a public liaison office that handles things, but political affairs kind of was the first line of of inquiry for most of. Uh, you know, most people who wanted something uh, from from the president. I also had quite a bit of oversight over personnel. Uh, I, I worked in the personnel stream. The president gets to appoint all kinds of people from Supreme Court justice down to random boards and commissions you've never heard of. And I was uh, part of that team uh, that would go into the Oval Office every few days with a big binder and say, you know, Mr. President, we're recommending this person for this ambassadorship or this board or or this job at, say, uh, you know, the Department of Energy. Uh, so uh, spent a lot of time on that. And in and, and all of it, uh, reporting up to to Carl, you know, he was very involved in in virtually everything. 
And Carl Rove, Carl Rove is, I, I, I'd have this really weird ranking um, in my head of the smartest people I've ever met. And it's, you know, Bill Clinton is on, is probably number one. Um, and then after that, it's a muddled group of individuals, but Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, Newt Gingrich, but Carl Rove is on that list in the top five as well. I do a lot of speeches with him, but he is utterly brilliant. And yeah. people may be like, how do you say that? Because I mean, the guy knows every, I might disagree with him on 99 out of a hundred things, but he's utterly brilliant, isn't he? Yeah, he really is. And when you're staffing someone who's brilliant, you really have to show up prepared to play every day. Like you can't, you know, you can't half-ass it, man. You gotta, you gotta like show up and have it all eyes dotted, T's crossed, whatever you want to call it. Because uh, his attention to detail, his attention to to specific things, it's really, really something to behold. So working for him was was fun. It was hard, but it was it was a great learning experience. I've carried a lot of lessons uh, forward, and his his value to George W. Bush it's hard to it's hard to overstate it. I mean he. He provided so much counsel on so many different fronts. Some of it, you know, some of it people wouldn't know, but he, he was, he really was the architect. And, and as, as we, you know, think of that whole presidency, it, a lot of it was Carl. Talk about run switch PR for a minute, because people always say that they're in consulting or they're in PR, but what, tell me what that means when you, when Coca-Cola calls you and wants to retain you, and let's just say it's not a, not a crisis, because we know what that looks like, but just on a day-to-day basis, what does that look like? Yeah, we have a number of clients uh, that have varying needs. Some of it is standard sort of corporate communications. A lot of corporations don't really have robust uh, public relations or communications uh, divisions. You know, they may have a person, maybe they have nobody at all, but they do have comms needs. I I do think uh, we are living in a communications culture. And so even if your company has never thought of itself as needing to communicate more and more, it's just becoming a necessity. So we have a whole staff of people here who who oftentimes just provide uh, sort of like um, communication staffing to a company that has none. So that's that's what I would call the day to day sort of blocking and tackling. We do a lot of crisis work uh, for people who are having some kind of a problem or who are engaged in some sort of unexpected uh, public item, and maybe they're not trained up to handle it, or you know they just don't have the relevant expertise on staff. Um, uh, so that that's ongoing. We, we do engage in public affairs work. Um, we're not lobbyists, but we do engage in communications campaigns that are built around public policy issues. So, you know, you'll, you'll have groups of people who want to pass a bill or kill a bill or affect change in some sort of public policy venue, but often they don't know how to best argue for it or best describe it, or the people who work for it, uh, need to be trained on how to engage with the media. I'm going to be doing an interview and I've never done one. What do I do? So that's a, that's a specific service that we provide. Uh, so it, it, it really is a, a pretty comprehensive full service communications business. Like I said, I, I do a little bit of political consulting these days. We have opened a compliance arm. Uh, we we uh, hired a staff to do uh, campaign finance compliance, which has been a nice practice, which is you know, kind of one of the most tedious, complicated, boring, yet important part of campaigns, making sure you get all your your financial stuff reported to the proper authorities. That's been a nice new line of business for us. So we're uh, we're counselors, uh, and uh, but we also produce things. I have found in my business career, Bakari, that a lot of organizations just lack someone who can put pen to paper, whether that's on a speech, a press release, talking points, copy for a website, um, 
rebuttals to someone who's making an allegation, whatever it is, somebody has to put pen to paper. And I, I find that we're often those people. So let's get into what you know best. Well, not best. One of the things you know best, which is politics. Let's talk about the midterms. Obviously, Republicans didn't fare well um, or fare as well as expected. Why do you think that was the case? Well, I think uh, the House and the Senate should be discussed separately because I think you have two different dynamics. In the House, uh, you know, Republicans won the national popular vote, strangely, but the vote distribution was such that it didn't allow for the kinds of gains that a lot of people were hoping for. Republicans did win the majority, but it's a it's a tight majority. Is it four or five? What is it now? It's 222 to 212 to one at the moment, I believe, with that uh, special election that, that we still have to, I guess, Virginia uh, has to has to go. So it's it's actually the same number of seats Democrats had. So it, it's basically what Pelosi had. Uh, that's what McCarthy will have. Uh, but the question is, what, is who, he going to be able to drive party unity the way what, she did? What who will have? <laughs> yeah, well, I think he's going to make it. But the math is difficult. And what they're asking him to do is essentially put his head in a guillotine and hand somebody else the string every day, every day. I mean, this rule to vacate the chair is a crazy rule. And and to agree to it basically is that you're putting your life in, in the hands of people who have said very, very mean and nasty things about you in public. So it's it's a dangerous game and the math is difficult. I think he'll make it. Most of the people I talk to think he'll make it. But, uh, you know, he's got to go to the floor and get these votes. And and uh, it's it's obviously not a done deal. On the Senate side, I actually think it's a lot clearer what happened. We had candidacies that just weren't built to get a majority of the vote in a particular state. I mean, they had real limitations uh, in a lot of these places. Dr. Oz had limitations. So did Fetterman. But but Oz had real limitations. Blake Masters had limitations. Bolduck in New Hampshire had real limitations. You go around the map and and, and some of these candidacies uh, just weren't built uh, to withstand the rigors of a general election, uh, you know, in a top tier target Senate race. And so uh, we talk a lot about candidate quality over the past year. I think I think it manifested itself on election night. Some of these folks got close, some didn't. But, you know, we just didn't win the races we were hoping to win. There were a couple of bright spots. Ted Budd in North Carolina is one. He ran a pretty straightforward, no frills, boring race. And that's what this cycle was looking for. J.D. Vance won in Ohio, but he drastically underperformed the governor there. And you can see that it had Ohio not been such a red state, he would have probably had the same issues yeah. as some of our other campaigns. Yeah, Ted Budd broke my heart. I, I thought we were going to pick off Ted Budd, but it was a weird race because it was completely both candidates were completely under the national radar. Yeah. And so it was a hundred thousand vote difference between the two. You're, you're somebody that I would call a traditional conservative. I don't mean that it's any negative connotation at all. It's just a, a conservative from a day a day that's passed, a Bush McConnell type of guy. Is it fair to say, though, that this party or your party is still Donald Trump's? And if it's not Donald Trump's party, whose is it? Yeah, I, I think the this is the purpose of presidential primaries to sort of sort out what you're going to be. And I don't know yet. There's been a lot of polling this week uh, that shows Trump is really in decline. I mean, there's some polling out this morning, in fact, from the Wall Street Journal and yesterday from USA Today in Suffolk. Ron DeSantis has, at least according to these numbers, overtaken Donald Trump. And if you believe the general election numbers, Ron DeSantis has overtaken Joe Biden. I mean, he is moving up and, and Trump really is in decline. And I think um, and so I think this primary will bear out the answer to your question, whether he still owns it. I think a lot of Republicans would probably say to you, I voted for him twice. I like most everything he did. 
it's time to move on. And and in their hearts, they know that if we nominate him again, we are likely to lose to Joe Biden or some other Democrat again. Nobody wants to lose again. And people are tired of backing into things. I mean, the only thing we've won lately was the 2016 presidential. We lost the popular vote and we, you know, we backed into it. I mean, let's be honest. We accidentally won. We yeah, accidentally was, won. It was the weirdest it, thing ever. Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, it, it, but it was an accident. It wasn't by any pure genius or you know, skill. We lost by several million votes, but we accidentally won because of the system. And then we lost the popular vote in 20 and we and we also lost the Electoral College. Regarding traditional Republicans, I mean, you know, I, I hear people out there saying, you know, this old party is dead and so on and so forth. But I'm like, why? I mean, the last time we won the national popular vote in a presidential campaign was George W. Bush, 2004. Mitch McConnell, who you mentioned, has never gotten fewer votes than a Democrat in his entire life. Donald Trump's never gotten more votes. So as we think about what is the party going to look like in the future, I think a lot of people are are looking for vibes. And I'm just looking for how do we get more votes <laughs> than the other party? And <laughs> and the clear answer is you have to have a party big enough to accommodate the populism, the McConnell Bush wing, the Romney wing, the you know, everybody you see out there with a voice, you have to be big enough to accommodate it. And I think one of the failings of the Trump years is that Trump and a lot of his people are actively constantly trying to make the party smaller, excommunicate the people they don't like. The wages of that are clear. You lose a bunch of races. And it's just exceedingly difficult to win the White House while losing the national popular vote. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm of the mind that we need a different nominee in 2024, if for no other reason, and there are a lot of reasons, but if for no other, do you want to give yourself a chance to win or not? And, and if you don't, then what is the purpose of a political party to you? Is it a club for you to kick people out of, or is it merely a vehicle to win elections? So help me understand this, because I I hear you, but what is the Republican primary electorate, and why do they opt for candidates like Herschel Walker and Dr. Oz? What, what am I missing about what the base of the party is, or is it that Trump control that you're talking about? Well, I think in in the case, I think those are two different, totally different situations. In the case of Pennsylvania, it was an extremely close primary. And uh, if not, but for Trump's intervention, I actually think McCormick probably would have won. McCormick is the McCormick salt guy, right? Uh, or he on a coal mine. Didn't, what, he was independently wealthy for something, yes, right? He's like a he's like an investment guy uh, okay. and a uh, uh, really rich guy, invested a lot of his own money, but but kind of in the mold of, uh, I would say, Glenn Youngkin of Virginia, kind of that same kind of guy. So, you know, sort of a, you know, moderate appeal, you know, conservative, but 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 seems like a, a reasonable sort of person that you could visualize being in the Senate. Oz was a celebrity type candidate with not as many ties to Pennsylvania as was discussed ad nauseum during the campaign. There were other candidates as well. And he ends up winning that primary with like 30 something percent of the vote because of Trump's intervention. In Georgia, Herschel Walker did not need Donald Trump to win his primary. Donald Trump recruited him to run. But if Herschel Walker woke up one day and said, well, I'm going to run for the Senate, you know, Trump or no Trump, he's winning a Republican primary in Georgia. I'm, I'm, I mean, he just is. Uh, we can debate whether that was the right answer for the Republican Party. He obviously lost. So, uh, But Trump's engagement there, to me, has been overstated to some degree. But it is true. He recruited him. I think he talked Herschel Walker into it. Uh, so his endorsement was not determinative on the outcome, but it was determinative on the entrance. And uh, and I and I, I view Walker and, and Oz as completely different kinds of situations. But 
one thing is true. They both were closely linked to Donald Trump in some way or another. Their political identities were basically tied to Trump. And at the end of the day, independent voters, even ones that don't like Joe Biden, decided that was a bridge too far and they both suffered for it. How do you read Georgia? Because you had someone like Brian Kemp and everyone who was in the mold of Brian Kemp win. But then you had Georgia voters, and I don't think Georgia is a purple state. Georgia is still a red state. But these same red voters reject Herschel Walker. How do you read that? And does Brian Kemp run for president in 2024? Uh, I read Georgia as a purplish red. I, I do think it, it obviously has is getting purple tendencies because of of what's going on in the Atlanta suburbs. Now, the question is, does that snap back to reality once Trump's no longer on the stage? Good question. I guess we'll find out in the future. But it, it seems to me Georgia isn't as red as we once thought of it. But but as you pointed out, every other Republican won except for Herschel Walker, all up and down uh, the the ticket. And so obviously people there want to vote Republican. I think ultimately Herschel Walker's um, baggage drug him down with the same kinds of voters who also didn't vote for Trump over Joe Biden. I mean, there are there are center right voters who live in the Atlanta suburbs, who live in suburbs all over the country, who just probably <laughs> couldn't name one or two policies about Biden they like, but they really just disliked the way Trump handled himself, the way he acted, whatever you want to call it, the character stuff. Yep. And so they either voted Democrat or they just didn't vote for the Republican. In Herschel Walker's case, I think a lot of people thought, you know, this is a legend, you know, he's a Georgia legend, but at the end of the day, some of these things are not are not things I want to stomach because they remind me too much of Donald Trump. Uh, do I think Brian Kemp will run for president? I don't know, but he certainly earned it. I mean, you look at all the Republicans around the country who who withstood the onslaught. He took on the left and Abrams and took on corporations. He took on Donald Trump. Remember, Donald Trump's biggest priorities were defeating Brian Kemp and Lisa Murkowski. Two failures, by the way. You're but correct. Trump stared everyone down from the right, the left, from corporate America, from the national media. He just stared them all down and won a pretty resounding victory. I I, I think that kind of backbone is, is a pretty good story to tell in a presidential primary. My suspicion is if you dropped him off in Iowa, he'd sell pretty well. That's actually very true. I actually think he's not going to run because there's going to be a Senate seat that comes up. Uh, yeah. And I, you know, I think, a, I think a Ossoff Kemp race is a tough race for us to hold. Uh, yeah. It'd, It'll be interesting to see. Handicap the 2024 Republican feel for me, particularly my good friend who I do believe is running for president, Tim Scott. Yeah, I'm a big Tim Scott fan myself, uh, and I hope he runs because I think he's one of the best communicators we have in the party. Okay. His voice is is optimistic. I, you know, I, I think there's two kinds of ways to run campaigns, optimistic and, you know, fear. pessimistic or fear. And And Scott has always been one of the most optimistic people and you think about his background and and the, his family's tradition and history and and where where they all came from and what he has become and what he represents i just to me that's what the republican party is and ought to be selling is just this idea you know that 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 you can you can turn yourself into to a to the kind of person and leader tim scott is so i i hope he runs i don't know if he will but i hope he does i think the field is very simple there's Trump who occupies a space, a decaying space. There's Ron DeSantis who is separate and apart from every other challenger to Trump in terms of national popularity. And then there's the field, which contains Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, Glenn Youngkin, 
and a whole bunch of other people. Mike Rogers, Mike Pompeo, Mike Pence, the Mikes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and they're all basically sitting there with, with at best low single digits, hoping to catch lightning in a bottle. Uh, so it, it, to me, the biggest question for a Republican strategist is how do you keep in 24 uh, from happening what happened in 2016, where basically fragmentation of the field was a cocoon around a candidacy like Trump's. Uh, Trump got 45% of the vote in the Republican primary in 2016. He was not a majority candidate. He was never gotten a majority of the votes in general election. He does not exist on majorities. He exists on pluralities and in systems where pluralities can <laughs> succeed. And so uh, if we have 15 or 20 people on the ballot in all these primary states, he's probably got a great chance. If this thing winnows down to him and DeSantis or him and one other person that people like, I think he will be taken down. Uh, um, I think it will be difficult. He's got, I mean, Trump is the, he is now the establishment. He was the president. He controls the RNC. The chairman of the RNC is loyal to him. He's got a whole cadre of operatives who are totally dependent upon him for their livelihood. I mean, he is the establishment. He's now facing off against an insurgent. Uh, but I think the sentiment among Republicans that it's time to start winning again uh, I think it's real, and I think the baggage has gotten too heavy, and I think that's why you've seen some of the polling come out uh, that you have showing DeSantis overtaking Trump. So DeSantis is in a class by himself. Trump never faced an opponent in 16 who was who had the reservoir of support that DeSantis has right now. Um, how do Republicans view a Biden 2024 presidential candidacy, and which Republican opponent gives you the best chance, um, by the way, that's not Donald Trump? Yeah, I, I have just viewed this very simply. Whichever party nominates someone new, if the other party nominates someone old, new is going to beat old. I think the market demand for both parties to nominate someone new is really high. And if they both do it, it's going to be an amazing race. But if one goes old and one goes new, I think new has a massive advantage. I think people, look at it. I think they're tired of Trump. I think they're tired of Biden. I think Biden, for most voters, was just a bridge to get past the Trump era. Right. Basically. And and that's over now, maybe. And so um, I, I really think the market demand is for just new people, new blood, younger people. And I've said this on TV with you, I think, but I, I think most Americans would rather choose two random names out of the Peoria phone book to run against each other than have a rematch <laughs> of Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And and so I think if if the Democrats nominate Biden, any of the people we just mentioned other than Trump would probably win. They're new. Maybe yeah. not. Maybe not, you know, the people who were directly connected to the Trump administration, like, you know, Mike Pence. I think he did the right thing on January 6th, but I just I don't see the path. But you take some of these new voices, uh, some of these governors, you know, some people that are that are fresh faces. I mean, they would stand a really good chance. And if we nominate Trump and Democrats go a different direction, then my suspicion is Trump will be drubbed again. One of my last questions for you is how do Republicans, well, actually, how do Republicans lead in 2024 in the House? That's what's been driving me crazy. I mean, what should we expect from the Hunter Biden investigations? Or are there going to be any real policies? Uh, I think investigations are going to be in the news every day. Um, interestingly, I, I was born and raised in the Kentucky 1st District where Congressman James Comer uh, represents. And uh, you'll be hearing him a lot because he'll be they'll have a cot over at Sean Hannity's show for Jamie Comer because he's going to be on TV every night. But he's the tip of the spear for these investigations. They don't consider it to be a Hunter Biden investigation. They consider it to be a Joe Biden investigation. 
that's that's big. The Afghanistan withdrawal is going to be big. The border issues, they're going to be after Homeland Secretary Mayorkas every day, I think uh, is going to be a big one. I think some COVID investigations will be big. So that that is going to be a persistent issue. I think in the immediate policy short term, uh, what Republicans want is to spend less money. And so this back and forth right now over the um, funding the government here, the omnibus and how that's going to go. Uh, you're starting to see a lot of people talk about that now. I don't know how it's going to work out uh, over the next few days, but but there is a, a drive within the Republican Party to do something about too much government spending, which Republicans believe led to inflation and which was the centerpiece of the House campaign. And so they believe they are on solid political footing to try to spend less. I think you'll continue to hear about that. But I wouldn't expect too much out of divided government, honestly. I think uh, I think investigations, oversight, a little bit of back and forth on random stuff. But basically, <laughs> I think the presidential campaign has already started, and both parties are going to be fully focused on that for the next two years. And so uh, uh, other than random little stuff in Washington, I just think gridlock's the name of the day. How can people follow you on IG, Twitter? What are your social media handles? And I want to thank you for joining my show today, brother. Yeah, of course. Thanks for the invitation. On Twitter, at Scott Jennings, KY. Uh, Instagram is the same. I don't post a lot there, but uh, it's the same. And then, uh, obviously, we're on CNN a lot together. So you can follow our our adventures, uh, fighting with each other and fighting with the hosts, or you holding me while someone else pummels me, or someone else holds me while you pummel me. Uh, that's a daily manifestation. So <laughs> it'll be you, a... wear it, you wear it well. You wear it well. <laughs> you just got to keep smiling, man. <laughs> All right, my brother Scott Jennings. Thank you for coming on the show today, brother. Thanks, Bakari.